The Guardian. New theme tune and a new presenter. Welcome to Media Talk 2.0. We're in Cambridge this week for the RTS convention, where everyone's been getting potty about plurality and gaga about next generation TV. If that's your kind of thing, then stick around, because we've got interviews with Jeremy Hunt, Mark Thompson, and reaction to Lord Patton's assessment on the imminent cuts at the BBC. And if it's not your thing, we've got one of the stars of Peep Show, and it's not Superhands. I think in a hundred years' time, television will be amazing. You'll never watch anything boring, and always watch brilliant, scintillating HBO standard genius. I'm John Plunkett, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. Welcome to Cambridge, the city of perspiring dreams. We're here in the Fens for the annual Royal Television Society Convention, and so are a bunch of industry bigwigs and media analysts, many of whom you'll be hearing from in this podcast. Most of the headlines were made by BBC Trust Chairman Lord Patton, and what he had to say about delivering quality first. We'll get to that later. But the conference began with a keynote speech by the Culture Secretary, Jeremy Hunt. It was another of his trademark note-free affairs, and in it he touched upon ultra-fast broadband, local television, and in the light of the aborted B-Sky B News Corp deal, cross-media ownership. I got a few minutes with the Minister, and I began by asking what Ofcom's investigation into power and the British media might mean for the BBC. Well, it's a very big and difficult issue as to how the BBC fits into this. Um, But the BBC has different governance structures, and so... The question you need to ask is, do the different governance structures that the BBC have provide the protection the public needs against one media organisation becoming over-dominant? And I think we need to look at that, and that needs to be part of the the thinking about the methodology on uh, media plurality and this very important issue of making sure that no organisation or person has undue influence. And in retrospect, was a combined News Corporation and um, uh, News International and BSKB too big? The reason that, in the end, I asked for Ofcom's advice about uh, whether it was advisable to accept the undertakings was because the phone hacking issues became so large that um, I thought there was a legitimate question to ask about whether there were issues in the corporate governance of News Corp. Um, And um, I didn't come to a judgment on that, but I wanted to ask for advice on that before I accepted any undertakings. In the end... That proved immaterial because the bid was was withdrawn. But obviously, I would need to be satisfied on all those areas uh, were there to be any future bid put on the table. You're sticking by your plans for for local television. You said that uh, by 2015, more than half the population will have a quality local TV service. And you've also said they could be run for £500,000 a year. Is is that realistic? I think it's totally realistic. And it's been backed up by independent evidence um, by uh, Claire Enders of Enders Analysis. And um, I, um, I do take issue with what the, Guardian, the Guardian's report of our local TV seminar in London yesterday, which said that um, the local TV agenda has been plagued with concerns about financial viability. I think there were those concerns at the beginning, but actually the process we've been through has actually addressed uh, many of those concerns. And I don't think people are now arguing about financial viability. I think people think it is financially viable. They're arguing about the structure of the licenses, and you know, we're going to work through those issues as well. Just finally, X Factor or Strictly Man? Uh, um, X Factor. X Factor fan Jeremy Hunt. 
Now, as you'd expect, Mark Thompson had something to say about Hunt's speech. Here's the DG giving me his reaction. Well, yes, I admit it. We're, we're a provider of news in the UK. Um, I, I thought what Jeremy had to say both in his, in his speech but also uh, in response to questions actually was very reasonable. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely reasonable, it seems to me, to look at the BBC as one of the providers of news in the country. Um, I have heard a few people, not, not Jeremy Hunt, but a few people, though, talking as if you know, the BBC was not a public institution which you know, was an obvious, conscious purposeful, massive public intervention media, which has got colossal public support. And that sometimes I hear people talking as if it's a little bit like looking at healthcare in the UK and being surprised to find there's something called the NHS, which seems to do, have an awful lot of hospitals. I mean, you know, the BBC does what it does because it's been asked by the public and parliament to do it. We're required to serve every household in the country. And it's a, if you accept all of that, it seems to me the fact that we actually reach most households with news is, is a strength, not a weakness. And in terms of news provision and influence and potential bias, which I guess is what they're worried about, could you, uh, comparing the BBC with a, with a media operator, for instance, like News International to pluck one out of the air, is that sort of apples and pears, do you think? Or, or Guardian Media Group. I mean, as it were, I mean, any other. Well, the, the, the key thing is that the, the BBC has got a constitution, its royal charter and the agreement that goes with the charter, and a system, a system of governance and oversight, which is completely different from any other broadcaster, including even the other public service broadcasters, and utterly different from the press. And so it's required to be impartial, and there's any number of checks and balances in place to hold it to account and to ensure it is impartial. So, in a sense, the, well, you know, part of the, the, the way in which the checks and balances work is in return for extraordinary access to the British public and indeed to hundreds of millions of people around the world, the BBC is held much more closely to account for the accuracy and impartiality, uh, impartiality of its news. And if I may say so, I think that, that you can see that also in the behaviours. And for example, we, we've never had the same kinds of close relationship with politicians of any party in, in, in this country because the politicians don't think they can influence... Uh, the way the BBC covers the news and therefore spend their time talking to others. There's a world of difference between the issue of how, how large any commercial media group should get and, and what happens to your national public broadcaster who's required to serve everyone. I mean, that's what it says on the tin. I mean, it's not, you know, this is not a sort of accidental expansion in, in, in the BBC's market. We, we are required in the Charter to serve the entire, the entire public, every, every household in the land. And I think that, I mean, people are surprised that we, we continue to do that. We have about 97% reach. Um, but I think people also, the other thing that I think people forget is that the, you know, although we are very, of course, we, we have extensive news services and people do rely on our news and they trust our news more than any other provider. The only 10% of the population only get their news from the BBC. The vast majority of the population are very sensibly, it seems to me, drawing their news from multiple sources. So you can't leap from the amount of usage of the BBC to the idea that there isn't plurality in most homes. In 90% of homes, um, uh, there's extensive plurality of news in that home and people are listening to news from many sources. But there is a perception in some sections of the media, rightly or wrongly, that the BBC does does have a news agenda. You'll be well aware of that. Well, there'll always be a lively debate about how the BBC performs its news, and in an open society, you'd want that to be the case. But I think that the idea that you can um, extrapolate from a personal perception about, you know, a particular programme being unfair or biased to the idea that, therefore, the British public would be happy with the idea of, 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 of no longer being able to get BBC news services or no, no, no longer being able to get them in the, to the richness and the extent they do currently is... is uh, and I think it's rather that, that, to be honest, that some of the people who don't really believe there should be a BBC at all, you know, may, may think this is a good tactical opportunity to use arguments about plurality as another way of, of really pursuing a slightly different agenda, which is simply trying to, trying to remove the BBC or, or reduce it massively in size. If you talk to the public about the BBC, BBC, 
um, trust in the BBC as a news provider is higher than any other news provider in the country and much, much higher. I mean, we stand alone in terms of the public trust in, in news and um, support for the BBC and support for the licence fee is stronger now than it was four or five years ago. And, you know, although one, one shouldn't rule anything out, it would be a, a strange turn of events if something which began about phone hacking and the news of the world led to conclusions about uh, trying to uh, reduce the ability of Britain's public broadcaster to serve the British public with news. Uh, Jeremy Hunt was fulsome in his praise for the British creative industries and programme makers, but at the same time, as a result of last year's licence fee settlement, you've got to cut your budget by, by 16%. Well, I mean, the, I mean, in common with every other public institution, we're, we're facing uh, tighter funding in the next few years than, than in the past. And, you know, obviously, because so much of the licence fee goes out to the independent sector, that's, that's def- you know, it doesn't just deflate the BBC, it deflates actually a significant part of the, uh, of the creative industries. But I, I believe that we can, you know, not without pain, but we can get this settlement to work and, and continue continue to offer a really good um, uh, suite of services to the public. What I hope we can do is work with uh, the independent production sector, our own in-house production as well, to make sure that we minimise the damage to productions, look hard at the way we window content, the way we access uh, investment from uh, other broadcasters and other sources, both here but crucially around the world. So the actual effect in terms of our ability to invest in high-quality content is either the damage is minimal or we or we were able to actually mean that there's no damage at all and now it's in the perfect time for a sneak preview of dqf uh, which uh, we've been waiting uh, what 10 months for and possibly we're going to hear about it what, next month i'm going to say you may have to wait just a few more weeks before you get that but uh, uh, is there, uh, thanks for asking that's right <laughs> is, is bbc4 uh, is there a change of mind on bbc4 given the scale of the the, the response and uh, the, the love for it out there as there was for you know well, six I'm, music before i'm a pa- i mean I, I won't say anything anything about the uh, detail of the pros all i can say is i, I you know, i'm i was the director of television who, who who came up with the idea of bbc4 i'm a passionate supporter of bbc4 as i am i am of, of all bbc services so we'll take that as a, as a yes, it'll be on air next year. Take it as anything. No, I'm just talking about my, my personal love of BBC4. OK, more industry big cheeses in a moment, but it's time for a bit of light relief. Doing his best to liven up a pretty tedious session about next generation TV was David Mitchell. The star of Peep Show seemed unconvinced when it comes to tweeting and Facebooking while simultaneously watching the box. So when he came off stage, I asked David what he really thought about Convergence. I think in the long run, everything will be fine. I think in the long run, it'll be a better way for people to access good programmes and ultimately the market for good programmes will be, will be found. And, and I think in 100 years' time, television will be amazing. You'll never watch anything boring and always watch brilliant, scintillating, HBO standard genius. Having said that the transition to that utopia may be a very painful one as someone who works in the industry i hope it's a sticky five years it could be a disastrous 50 because the problem is that in the short term is that people will be getting their content for for free which is bad news for broadcasters and bad news for talent it's yes that's bad news for the whole business and it worries me that there's a sort of culture online that people think you have a right to things for free and they don't understand that you know whether it's a book or music or a newspaper article or, or whatever it costs money to make and we don't want those industries to be essentially booted back to amateurism we want there to be people paid to write articles people paid to make television programs people paid to write books because we have a better civilization when that happens but there's a there's an attitude online from some people that is inconsistent with that continuing you had the Megatron, I think, in Peep Show. Is that right? The, the, the remote controls held together by gaffer tape. Yeah. Do you buy into this new technology at home? Are you, are you uh, on these various new platforms? I, no, I'm not really. I think, my, I think my television would connect to the internet if I knew how to make it. 
But it's a flat screen. Tell me it's a flat screen. It, it is a flat screen. I had a very old television until last year. Really old. Uh, d- you know, didn't it, it didn't have CFAX. It was sort of pre-CFAX and then basically post-CFAX. Um, uh, and I was, but it was absolutely fine. It was, you know, colour. And then it finally, it, it sort of slightly exploded. So I thought that's definitely, I'm definitely not being wasteful by replacing it now. David Mitchell. Now, convergence isn't the only thing the TV industry is trying to get to grips with. No one's quite sure what the biggest challenge is going to be, but you'd hope this lot have a pretty good idea. Peter Fincham, uh, Director of Television at ITV. The biggest challenge in the next 12 months isn't really that different from the challenge in the last 12 months. Probably the same the 12 months after that, the 12 months before that, which is how does mainstream television... Uh, adapt to a rapidly changing world, changing behaviours, changing technologies and platforms? How does it keep at the, the, at the heart of people's viewing experiences, coming up with programmes that reach broad audience, that people enjoy, um, that people want to come to and want to watch, even despite the explosion of choice that's in front of them? That's a challenge, but it's a great challenge and it's good fun. Lorraine Hegarty, former controller of BBC One. I think the next biggest challenge is to come up with the next big hit because TV is as potent as ever and uh, in order to keep it that way, we need more great content. I'm Peter Bazalgette. I have been a TV producer. The biggest challenge for broadcasters over the next short term, two or three years, is keeping control of their content and continuing to monetize it effectively and sell the ads around it rather than find others, whether it's Google or Samsung TV or anyone else, saying, we want to sell your programs for you and we'll sell the advertising around it and we won't even mention it came from you. So it's keeping control of their brand and making people realize that it comes from them and selling the ads around it. I'm Fru Hazlitt, uh, MD of Commercial and Online Interactive at ITV, and I think the biggest challenge facing broadcasters over the next year is actually to uh, not get too distracted from the core things that they need to do and not try and do too many things all in one go, but to focus strategically on where they are going to make the most money, which is for us sticking with our very huge, enormous still broadcast platform and the advertising model that goes around it and then looking at what additional revenues you can make in that space from the multi-platform opportunity and I mean you know working with commercial partners and then two looking at the opportunities that that platform gives in terms of monetizing directly with the consumer which as we've said we're looking at and launching our pay solution in um, early next year. Greg Dyke, former Director General of the BBC. Uh, the next big challenge for the broadcasting industry comes with internet television. Uh, how fast, how quickly we're all going to receive it, I don't know, but that's the next big challenge. Aside from Jeremy Hunt's speech, the other bit of box office here in Cambridge was Chris Patton being grilled by Peter Bazalgett. The BBC Trust chairman was put on the spot about a number of issues, not least DQF, the Beeb's fancy acronym for making those cuts as a result of last year's licence fee settlement. Well, The Guardian's head of media and technology, Dan Saber, and friend of the pod, Maggie Brown, had a ringside seat in the pattern Q&A, and they join me now. Dan, what did you make of it? Lord Patton's got a very funny way of defending the BBC. He's clear what he's going to do is going to deflect an awful lot of the criticism of the BBC through humour. Uh, He's 
either very quickly gone native or he's a fully paid up believer. He's clearly a supporter of the BBC's investment in news, its editorial values and high quality content programming, its impact on, you know, on the world. He was pretty dismissive of, of any efforts to encroach on its territory, whether in terms of loose talk about maybe cutting back the BBC's market share as a result of some you know, Jeremy Hunt inspired Ofcom inquiry, any talk about sort of cutting back on international news. So, you know, as far as Claude Patton's concerned, I think if it can be wrapped up with an Edmund Burke quote and a quick gag, then that'll be his way of dealing with critics of the BBC for a long time to come. And uh, Maggie, he gave, he gave a few insights, I think, probably the clearest yet into the kind of things we can expect to see from DQF. Well, he said that there would be cuts in some of the news, um, maybe bureaus, and certainly he was talking too about cuts in entertainment. He said that these would be more significant than the cuts to news. He was also clear, and I think this is really interesting, that given that the BBC has had this frozen licence fee, he's not at, oh, and having to pay for other things, he's not trying to fight or claw back any territory, but he is not abandoning to anybody, like the Treasury, BBC Worldwide and clearly sees a commercial strategy that can return perhaps more investment back into the BBC that way than perhaps uh, some people in the audience here who are uh, commercial players, fierce independent producers uh, would be happy with. But that was pretty clear. He was quite firm about that. I I think myself, he is he's always naturally going to be a staunch uh, defender of the BBC. At the same time, I think he's a realist. And that's the other thing that came out of this. He's not trying to turn the clock back on things that he can't really have any impact on. For example, the Salford um, move, he's talking perhaps more people should go there if it's more cost effective. He's trying to actually put a gloss really on the the, the position the BBC finds itself in. Uh, It was a very confident performance. And on services, Dan, he said that there was no, no merit in amputation if you can avoid it. But then he said there are some luxuries we'll have to give up. He also said about that, he was talking about the digital channels, and he said, I think there was a need to, to sort of more carefully define what the digital channel stood for, but in the kind of straightened financial circumstances, which I think was a pretty clear-cut way of saying that both BBC3 and particularly BBC4 are going to have a much clearer and narrower focus. So, I mean, that, that suggestion, I think the force is going to come arts and archive feels very real now. Uh, and I think BBC3 will probably be just that bit more youth-oriented working on a, on, on a bit less money. So I think it's a very, very clear sense of sort of, I think, mission, less money and, and, and cutting back on some genres, I think, is the way forward. So he's pretty clear about that. One thing the pattern also said in passing, just, just not really on programming, but, but, but on himself, I think, was also worth touching on. Well, he was asked about the next licence fee negotiation. He said it'd be 2015, 2016. Uh, and then he went on to say, but I, you know, my term of office expires in 2015, uh, you know, and I won't be there at the sort of, uh, at the culmination of the negotiations. Uh, Anyway, the way he said it, it seemed to be a pretty clear suggestion that he was going to be a one-term chairman, which is interesting and a, a little bit unfortunate, actually. Yeah, he's 67, so maybe he doesn't want to do it you know, for two terms at that age. Or, on the other hand, uh, the BBC might want a bit more stability than just four years. I, that, that worried me because it literally cut the ground away from him because we all know that licence fee settlements... In, in, certainly the next one, which is the big one, it's a 10-year, uh, it's the renegotiation of the charter as well. Those are things that take a long time, and he will be there. But then he's saying, but I won't be responsible for the final delivery. And I, I would have not said that. I don't think that's a good a place for the BBC to be. Yeah, there's no harm in being a one-term chairman, but maybe there is if you announce it so soon into your tenure. 
Exactly. And the other problem is as well that really he is a formidable player and you would have hoped that, for example, there could be a short-term extension. He could be given another year or two years. I know he is 67, as he reminded us, but he also reminded us he's an intelligent man. And I, I, was, I was sorry he said that. Either he's thinking that there won't be a very good settlement, so I don't want my name on it, uh, or he just was actually saying the truth. I, I, I can't go on uh, in, in, because he's clearly working most days of the week on the BBC if, if uh, what he said today is true, the, the kind of visits he's been making all around the place. So no, I was worried by that. And on the possibility or prospect of appointing a successor to Mark Thompson, he said, well, maybe I won't have to, which is uh, uh, presumably tongue-in-cheek. Well, he seemed very th- he was very enthusiastic about Mark at every single possible opportunity, and there seemed to be genuine warmth in it. And that's quite different, I think, to the rather testy relationship that Michael Lyons and Mark Thompson had. And I think Mark Thompson, when, when Lyons is around... I'm not sure Thompson had the greatest respect for Sir Michael. And I think Mark Thompson does like to be his own chairman and director general at once, if, if at all possible. And one would go to many meetings where they would be interrupting each other and there would be sort of slight bristling between the two. And I think Sir Michael found it hard to articulate a distinct position. Lord Patton doesn't need to be sort of be, articulate a distinct position because he's so famous, really. He's just such a sort of heavyweight politician. Uh, he, you know, he turns up, in one sense, as a sort of brand finish in the public mind. So he can... He he doesn't have to worry about that. He doesn't have to pretend. He can't pretend that he's a broadcaster of any substance and doesn't try. Uh, and so, so I think it simply focuses on being. Well, in effect, I think he's going to be more of a cheerleader of the organisation with occasional criticism than a regulator. And is that Maggie? The fact he appears to be such a cheerleader and, and him and, and Mark Thompson sort of singing from the same hymn sheet is that? Uh, will that sort of um, get the goat of the corporation's critics who wanted to be more of a regulator and, and lead to more calls for a, uh, you know a, a, an alternative and a successor to the BBC Trust? Well. What we've actually seen, if you look at the whole of this conference, is we've had a um, Secretary of State who turned up, Jeremy Hunt, actually saying very nice things about the BBC. In a lot of ways, the, the things that had to be done to the BBC, and that includes cutting executive pay, they were all kind of delivered under lions. The, the kind of outcry against some of the excesses of BBC executives had sort of been settled by the time uh, this, this appointment was made. Patterns inheriting a different world. We've also so if you think about uh, Jeremy Hunt's position, he's delivered a sort of deal and a cut to the BBC on the one hand, but he actually got very close to waving through the B Sky B uh, merger. I mean, he was saved by days, that's all. And I thought that the figure he cut here has been much more humble, really, less strutting than you might have imagined. And he was also quite clearly uh, signalling his dependence on Ofcom, a regulator that has really roared back into life, whereas a year, two years ago, we thought Ofcom was probably for the chop. So the the, the world is is a bit different, and Patton is probably reflecting what most people now feel about the BBC. We don't actually want it to be too any bigger, but we do want it to be run well, but in our interests. And, you know, it's had to tighten its belt. Uh, but we're kind of more or less happy with where we are. And it seems like a long time ago now, Dan, but a few closing thoughts on um, Jeremy Hunt's speech. Well, I think Jeremy was a man who had to show, after the sort of bruising experience of the B-Sky B-Bit, I think he was a man who had to show that you know, he was a minister with a plan uh, and, as a result, sort of pre-briefed uh, various bits of his speech to the degree that by the time we arrived in the hall there was not much left, not much left to play with. I think uh, Jeremy felt a bit, a bit bruised, actually, by things on The Guardian's coverage. He thought we were rather hard on him, rather critical. And I think 
uh, and that I think perhaps reflects the fact of what we were saying I think reflects the fact that we don't think he covered himself in glory and hanging on to approving the B Sky B bid or, or wanting to and ignoring the phone ha- hacking issue until the very very last minute it's just lack of a linkage really what struck me about uh, what was so wrong really in those final months was that everybody could see there was a linkage between the phone hacking and the kind of uh, light that it was casting on uh, News International and News Corp and the B Sky uh, bid, but nobody was putting it together apart from sensible newspapers, and I include The Guardian in this. I, 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 think, that said, I think that's right, but, but, but that said, there were some substantive bits in the speech, or at least some attempts at sort of substantive you know, direction of travel. You know, he wants a review of cross-media ownership law, he wants to set, you know, actually go about that properly by getting Ofcom to kind of review how we measure these things. Uh, he said some interesting things on piracy, actually, how he wants Google to kind of improve its act and start to get better at sort of directing search away from pirate websites. It's actually a pretty significant thing and hasn't got much sort of play at a televi- the Television Society event. Uh, so he's trying to show he's on the move. He is talking about some substantive things, and I think, uh, uh, I think Jeremy's probably his, his sort of credit balance is it may be even to slightly down on his sort of first sort of 15, 18 months as minister. He, you know, he did pretty well actually to do a quick deal on the BBC. He's done, he handled B Sky B pretty poorly and kind of got away with it. And I think it's everything to play for for his tenure or for, for a verdict overall. Dan and Maggie, thanks very much. That's it from us here in Cambridge. You can read plenty more news and analysis from everything that's gone on at the RTS convention over at mediaguardian.co.uk. We're back in the studio next week, but in the meantime, leave your feedback on anything you've heard on our blog. Media Talks produced by Mr Ben Green. I'm John Plunkett. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.